Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another new episode of Undying Light. I'm your host, Pastor Alex, and today is a very special day, as always, whenever I on the mic with me. And uh, we are going to be continuing this journey working through the Lutheran theology, and we're going to look at some of the major differences between that and the rest of Protestantism, and we're going to look at some sacraments, and then I might uh, throw this guest some questions and see where we go from there. So uh, I'm going to welcome Pastor Brian Mueller on here, and I'll let him introduce himself and tell everybody a little bit about him. Uh, fantastic. Thank you, Alex, for having me. I'm Pastor Brian Wolf, the pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches, so two congregations um, in Austin, Texas, and um, I do some YouTube and some podcast stuff now and again. Uh, got the website, wolfmuller.co, so uh, that's good. I think that's uh, probably enough. <laughs> well, I was also uh, scoping out your website too a little bit. You got a couple books that you've written. Um, one of them I think it's really catching my attention is "Has American Christianity Failed?" Yeah, yeah. That that was. Um, uh, I started um, my theological journey not as a Lutheran. I was mm. baptized in the ELCA, so the Liberal Lutheran Church, but I wasn't yep. paying attention to the Bible or theology um, back then, especially in high school and in college. I really started to study, especially in the context of the American Evangelical Church. Um, we're going to Calvary Chapel. Uh, my wife and I, Carrie, met at uh, campus ministry at a Southern Baptist church, big Southern Baptist church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And so uh, it was theologically shaped for a number of years uh, by that by that theology, and um, uh, but then became discontent and started to wonder why, for example, the pastor said, hey, we should take the Bible literally, and then he reads the words of Jesus, this is my body, and he says, but not that, that's not literal. Mm. I said, well, why why not? So that started us on this uh, long couple of years of visiting just about every church in Albuquerque and talking to all the pastors and looking at all the stuff, comparative symbolics is is, uh, what the theologians call this, comparing what the different churches teach. And um, Ended up joining a catechism class and in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. I figured that's the last place we would be back at the Lutheran Church. But <laughs> here was a Lutheran Church that believed the Bible. That was nice. Mm-hmm. And so I uh, went through the class and and joined up. That was all 1999, the year I graduated from college. And uh, oh. we were confirmed in the Lutheran Church. And Carrie and I were married and 
Carrie graduated at the end of that year. Into that year, we found out we were expecting our first a child, Hannah. So all oh, that was all happening back then. So wow. Um, so has American Christianity failed? Is me trying to capture the mm, the beauty and the comfort of our Lutheran doctrine, our unique Lutheran doctrines. So so there's something uh, really wonderful in the distinction between law and gospel. There's something really wonderful in the in the doctrine that the sacraments are the Lord's means of grace, not our means of obedience, but mm-hmm. his so so I wanted to capture the wonder and the beauty and the the joy, the biblical clarity of our Lutheran teaching as opposed to big box evangelicalism. And so that's what that book is working on. Wonderful. That's uh, definitely has my attention. And uh, I'm I'm probably actually going to go ahead and <clears throat> get this amongst a couple others that you have. I'm always, you know, I, I, I come from a Calvinist background. I was uh, for years a Calvinist, if you would, five point. And which is funny because I was baptized in a Lutheran church. I was married I was confirmed in a Lutheran church, ELCA, and I was married in a Lutheran church, and I never thought anything of it, and I went down this path after uh, our marriage in 2007, and I just kind of stopped going to church, and my wife finally drugged me back after a number of years to a non-denominational, and that's what kind of kicked me into the, the, the cycle of you know, Calvinism. And I went hard into that for a number of years. And then I, uh, was guided to check out, uh, the Lutheran church again. And so I joined, uh, the, the LCMC, which is a smaller, you know, Senate than the, uh, Missouri Senate. And a suspicious number of same letters. I always think. Yes. Yes. Very suspicious. <laughs> uh, we're not quite, and I, I think, to, based upon confession, we're we're pretty close to it. But there's some churches that might be a little bit more on the progressive liberal end of the spectrum than, you know, say like my church, for instance. Uh, we would probably be closer to like a Missouri Senate structure with our confessional standing. But it's uh, it's interesting. But I found this because I was thrown out by the ELCA. Uh, I, I was given a full ride scholarship to one of their seminaries and I was just disgusted with the context of how they were teaching in those schools. And so I, I enrolled in uh, Sioux Falls uh, Seminary back in 2019 and uh, I've been there since since then. I, I actually have a class meeting um, with my mentor team here in a few hours and so discussing kind of the the final pieces to my puzzle to graduate with but what i found is interesting i walked into that school the first class they have you take is a lutheran reformation class and i I walk in and i and i'm and i'm you know in the back of my head i'm thinking well i'm a calvinist and and i like some of the things luther says but you know i don't have to fully agree with everything he says or taught and and that might still work for me and so within probably a couple of weeks, I, I was throwing all sorts of stuff out of my backpack, on my theological backpack, because I'm like, this just this stuff, the, the Lutheran faith, the law gospel distinction, it, it, you know, how Luther viewed the sacraments, it just made so much sense. And it was comforting. 
you know, it was no longer about my fruit as, uh, you know, for assurance, it was the Lutheran faith. So I, I want to throw this question back to you and, and see, you know, what your view or what, you know, what you've experienced in, in some of these big distinctions, because, you know, I, I feel like with the ELCAs being prog as progressive and liberal as they are, uh, they kind of muddy the Lutheran f image. And so I'm, I'm curious how you uh, have seen kind of that impact you or your ministry. That's a great question. I, so 100% agree with you on the ELCA. I mean, they are just tripping over themselves to abandon every biblical distinction between mm -hmm. the creator and the creation, between man and woman, between, I mean, it's all just out the door. It's all big. It's, and that's always the Gnostic move is to just put everything in a big pile. You can't you can't tell where one thing ends and another thing begins. Mm -hmm. And so this this kind of postmodern move of erasing all distinctions, um, this is the theological game that the progressive churches are playing. And that's the same thing that's happening uh, with the ELCA. I, I saw just recently, I mean, just the the this Supreme Court decision um, for uh, the uh, abortion case mm -hmm. was released, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And Bishop Eaton of the ELCA releases a statement about how uh, terrified and, and angry and upset she is and how the the ELCA stands for, I can't remember what the euphemism is for abortion, um, reproductive health care or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, and this is their this is their statement, this this enraged idea that that it's going to be up to the states to make it legal or illegal to to tear the babies out of the womb. It's what what in the world is has ha is happening here um, with the ELCA that that's the thing that they're gonna I don't know. It's just kind of embarrassing. So they've abandoned mm -hmm. the scriptures a long time ago with this idea that the Holy Spirit speaks through culture. Mm -hmm. uh, that's again the progressive move. So I asked the I asked the question there on Twitter. Uh, do does the do the ELCA do they think pastorally that children who die before birth could go to heaven? Mm. And I think this is an interesting question mm -hmm. because if you say yes, then how can you deny the personhood of the child before birth? If if you say no, that the children aren't people until they are. I don't know, declared to be people by their parents by allowing them to be born or whatever. I, the whole thing falls apart. But this is the point. They, they don't it that that doesn't matter. That kind of inconsistency, uh, that that kind of um confusion doesn't matter for for the progressive churches because they it's it's part of the it's just, it's it's their frame of mind is that there there needs to be no clarity. They're 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 not troubled with inconsistencies. So, so the, so the ELCA is a is a really a, a a hot mess. And at some point, um, you 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 run so far away from God's ordering of the world that uh, that there's nothing left. I mean, you you start to wonder why, if everything the culture says is what the church says then why go to church at all if God's word is never hard? I mean, that's the, the, in some ways, that's the test of how seriously we we take the scriptures, mm -hmm. is not when it says the stuff that we agree with, but when it says the stuff that we disagree with, when it says the hard thing, 
when it says the thing we wish it didn't say, then what are you going to do? Uh, we've been studying Second or sorry, First Peter chapter two, where Peter has these really difficult instructions for Christians as citizens to be quiet and not rebellious, mm-hmm. and where he says that mercy is higher than justice. This is so hard for me. It's so hard for, I think, for everybody. But man, it's tough for me. But it, if it's God's word, then it's got to be God's word, and it's got to rebuke me when I'm wrong and correct me when I'm foolish. So. So we want to let the the Lord's word prevail. Uh, that, that's what it. I mean, that's what it means to be a Christian to hear His voice and to follow Him. Yeah, spot on. And that's an interesting uh, study to take on uh, with Peter's writings, and I and I find it to be challenging. I think you know, uh, for myself personally, it's like how do you how do you stand and be quiet amidst the storm that's raging around us. Or how can you be a pillar of light in the darkness of this world? And and I think there's the you, know, you can go to Twitter or social media, you know, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, and you'll find those like militant style Christians that are you know at the forefront of fighting every single thing, and and it's you know there's there's like a small bit that you can kind of applaud them for, but at the end of it, it's kind of like okay, well, this is obviously. <laughs> you know, going against what we want to be as Christians. I mean, we were, you know, one of the, let me change directions just slightly here. Cause one of the things that I've been challenged with personally is my view of understanding, uh, the Christian view within the government. And I, I just got finished, uh, just finished taking a, uh, missions class for seminary. And one of the things that really kind of, it's just, I still can't quite get over it personally is the fact that we as Christians try to plant our flag on either side of the aisle, whether mm-hmm. it's the left or the right. And, and we, we base our Christianity in our, in our exegesis on what side of the aisle we're on. Right. Right. And one of the biggest things that I'm like completely just blown away with is the fact that Christians have survived for 2000 years outside of, the United States being a country for the last 200 some years and Christianity has thrived without the polemics of politics being an influence on the church. Do you see, uh, you know, as, as kind of the, it feels like the storms continuing to brew and, and get, and get darker. Do you see, you know, or what's your outlook on the American church in general, um, whether it's in the Lutheran circle or within Protestantism, you know, do we do we have? I, I think we have an uphill battle, but I'm curious what your insights are. I, maybe I, I don't know. I certainly don't know the future, and I'm always very, very optimistic. I mean, the Lord can can um, turn darkness into light mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in a moment. He can take care of things. He can reverse things. He God is. We we forget so often that God is the God who converts. So um, I know that the Lord does not want His church to be gathered in the upper room uh, full of fear. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so many, um, I mean, this is the, so many churches forget the ascension of Jesus, the cessation that Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father in order to rule and reign in the world and to rule and reign all things for the sake of his body, the church. This is how Paul brings this great comfort at the end of Ephesians 1. 
that Jesus is ruling and reigning all things for the purpose of blessing his body, the church, which is wonderful. I mean, that truth is so full of comfort for us. So, um, so we want to always remember that. And, and then with that confidence, we can, we can go about our, our lives as free, not, not politically free, but spiritually free. And we don't then use our freedom as a cover up for vice, but to serve one another and to bless one another. So the Lord has set us free in order to serve and and to bless, and that's why the church is in the world is to bless. Mm-hmm. I think the thinking politically, the best thing to remember is Luther's doctrine of the three estates. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if this crossed your path yet, but it's a beautiful because normally when we think of like Lutheran political thought, we think of the two kingdoms: the right hand mm-hmm. kingdom, yep. the left hand kingdom, the sword of the spirit, mm-hmm. the word of God versus the sword of the sword, the state. That's all fine and good, but. More often than not, Luther talked about the three governments of the home and the city and the church, the congregation, the, 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 the family, the, the estate of the family, which brings forth and supports earthly life, the estate of the church, which brings forth and supports eternal life through the word and spirit, and the state, which brings forth little deaths to prevent the big deaths. <laughs> it, it amputates the gangrenous finger so that mm-hmm. the whole body doesn't die right. and that's the purpose of um of the state so when we remember those three estates it's it's really uh quite helpful to to see how god has ordered things in the world and to know that those three estates will stand uh, top to bottom i mean the lord supports those mm-hmm. three estates and so we don't have to worry i mean the devil is busy trying to overthrow them mm-hmm. and and people will be damaged in that assault but but they will stand until the last day so we don't we don't need to worry or panic about that and that the lord jesus shares his victory with us but it's also remembers that his victory looks like a crucifixion so the 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 christian will prevail it might look like being martyred but that's 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 okay yeah uh if that you know the worst thing that can happen to us is the best thing that can happen to us <laughs> right <laughs> someone exactly. comes and kills us and yeah. and that's the thing we've been hoping and praying for in mm-hmm. the lord's prayer so when the worst is the best then everything in between is fine yeah that's a good way to look at it and i think that's sometimes you know uh, as as the war rages on the political end in the united states that's where i i, I find a lot of christians are trying to you know they're they're they get so wrapped up in it, and 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 my family as well. Like I, my in-laws are, um, you know, much more on the conservative end of the spectrum, you know. But there's always the fear and doubt and worry in their voice. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, why worry? You know, just as you said, if if the worst thing that could happen to us is our death, which would then be the best thing because of what we get after that. If that's the worst thing, then why do we sit and fret over tomorrow when even Jesus tells us that it's, it's not our problem to worry about tomorrow? We've got issues today to deal with, focus on today. Uh, you bring up uh, an interesting point uh, on the freedom of a Christian. And this is something that I've been really uh, working on, kind of uh, expounding in, in a lot of my posts on social media and on this podcast. Um, but I want to get, you know, maybe. I want to get your opinion or your view, your understanding, because I find 
as my audience is traditionally more uh, in the Reformed circle than they are in the Lutheran circle, how can that be a comfort to to those individuals? Well, so uh, sorry, track me down with, with that question one more time. So, so from the Calvinist perspective, how the which particular doctrine of the Lutherans is troubling? Well, it's the it's it's not so much the troubling aspect. It's the it's the point of assurance. And so in the in the Calvinist circle, it'll be you know searching your fruit and are you demonstrating enough fruit? Whereas, I see. Yeah. Whereas the Lutheran circle, it's uh or the you know it's the freedom of a Christian to go and do work, and our assurance comes in the cross. I gotcha. I, oh yeah. Okay. Freedom of Christian. So um. Yeah, let me let me kind of see if I can toss a few things out there and then connect them. So, in this, I'm realizing that I didn't answer your first question, which had to do with the Lutheran, the particular view of comfort in you in Lutheran theology. Mm-hmm. I, I one time did a word search. I I just pulled up the Council of Trent and the book of, the Lutheran Book of Concord and the Westminster Standards, so mm-hmm. the Calvinistic confessional mm-hmm. documents, and I did a word search for conscience and i did a word search for comfort because i noticed that this comes up on almost every page of the lutheran confessions mm-hmm. this doctrine truly comforts terrified consciences that phrase is over and over in the lutheran doctrine and i wanted to know if it was uniquely lutheran and it turns out it is mm. the, the other confessions will barely talk about the conscience and hardly ever mention comfort uh, a couple of the Reformed uh, confessions, it'll come up, but it's not a central thing. And so you realize what the Lutherans were up to was they were not simply trying to assert the truth of biblical doctrine. They were. But they were especially honed in on that truth that brought comfort. And and that comfort is connected to the truth. So it's not, you know, it's not a, a, a comfortable lie. It's the truth that brings comfort, the truth of what Christ has done for us and what he continues to do for us. And so our comfort, which I think is also part of our assurance, or maybe it's the other way around, our assurance is part of our comfort, mm-hmm. does not rest in us, but outside of us. That's the key distinction. The Lutherans are always talking about the externum verbum, the external mm-hmm. word. Calvin separates at the very beginning. This is the fountain. This is the the spring of his error. He separates the internal call and the external call. Mm. And the external call of the gospel is to all people. That's the preaching of the gospel, the work of the Mm -hmm. church. The internal call is what the Holy Spirit does in my own heart. And it's the internal call that is efficacious, not the external call. So I cannot look to the external call and say, here the will of God is being revealed to me. That's only on the inside. Mm. So so for those in the Reformed tradition, they, they look for the assurance of salvation, first by the faith in the heart, and second by the fruit of faith in their life. Now, I don't want to say that there's no comfort there, but there's very little comfort there, because the human heart is a boat tossed every which way on the sea mm-hmm. and our works are very inconsistent yes the the lutheran doctrine and i think it's pretty simple is we don't look f- to, uh, for assurance to faith or the fruits but to the source of faith or to the cause of faith faith 
comes through hearing and hearing from through the word of God. So I don't look to see if I have faith. I look to see if God has spoken. I don't look to see if I'm if I'm believing. I look to see if God is preaching. I don't look to see if I am being obedient. I look to see if Christ has been obedient, etc. I, I look to, therefore, my baptism, where the Lord mm-hmm. says that's where he washes his church, mm-hmm. Ephesians 5, where he forgives our sins, Acts 2, where he saves us, 2 Peter 3. I, I don't look to um, my own acts of love, but I look to the Lord's Supper, where Jesus has promised his body and blood and the forgiveness of sins. And in those things, I find my confidence and my assurance. How can I not be the Lord's if he's given me his body and blood to eat with this promise that my sins are forgiven? And so uh, so the assurance that we uh, find is on the things that the Lord has done, not on the things that we've, um, not on our reaction to those things. And that's where our assurance can be, our feet can be firmly planted. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that leads right into this next topic, if you would, um, on the sacraments in of themselves. And uh, you, you had just done uh, a video, probably been a couple of weeks uh, uh, now, with Flame and Lex Luther, Lex Lutheran, um, discussing baptism. And and I want to try and maybe I don't want to say recapture that, but I want to try and. And, and really just hone in on the comfort found in baptism and, and, and the assurance that can be given there. Because, uh, you know, I threw a question out to, uh, as a poll just to get people's intake. And, and the answer range uh, was considerable. You know, I mean, it, it, I had people that would message me and they're like, you know, I've been, you know, uh, Reformed Presbyterian and I hold the sacraments to a high level, or I'm a Lutheran and I view baptism to such a high level. And then there's people to the other extreme that's are like, yeah, it doesn't really do anything. You know, it's just a means of obedience. Uh, and, 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 and I've even had some people get angry with me because, and, and bluntly tell me baptism doesn't do anything. It doesn't save you. It can't possibly do anything because it's your work. And so, you know, we've got a lot of views uh, that sit out there and I, you know, and I've taken my time working through a lot of the Lutheran aspect of it, but I want to, you know, continue to hone in on that comfort for people found in this sacrament. Yeah, I think so. A couple of things. The, the, the most important thing is that Jesus obviously wants us to be baptized. And mm-hmm. so why? why? Why does he institute baptism? He, he says all authority. It's an amazing thing, actually, the preface to the institution of baptism, mm-hmm. where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We say, wow, what are you, you going to do with all that authority? You have all authority in heaven and on earth? What, what, and then he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So that Jesus says, okay, I have, I am the king of the universe and I want you, therefore, to baptize and to teach. Mm-hmm. That is amazing. So that baptism 
comes directly from the gift of Jesus' kingship, his rule and reign in the universe. So it must be important. And Jesus wants us to have something in this gift of baptism. So now the question is, what is it? What is Jesus giving in baptism? And for that, we only can look to the scriptures. But I, but I don't, I, we, we cannot miss this, that this discussion about baptism is not just because there's different denominations who have different opinions about different things. No, Jesus instituted baptism and he did it because he loves us. Mm-hmm. And if we are to say, oh, it's just, it doesn't matter or whatever, that we, we are not authorized to diminish baptism in any way with any of the gifts of the Lord. We're not authorized to despise any of the things that he does and says and institutes so that it's from Jesus. And 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 my the great sadness here is that there's so many people who who don't rejoice in the gifts that Jesus wants to give in baptism and it's um it's it's an uh, it's I think it's just a sadness there because the gift is taken away. Okay, so if baptism is a gift from Jesus, why? When we start to look at all the passages about baptism, we recognize that it has at least something to do with salvation. Baptism Mm -hmm. and salvation are always on the dance floor together. Mm -hmm. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever is baptized is put on Christ. In baptism, you were buried with him. You were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Jesus was risen from the dead, you may live a new life. Uh, baptism is a circumcision not made with hands. Baptism, Peter says, baptism saves you. Mm-hmm. Arise and be baptized and have your sins washed away. You, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, all, all of these great promises are there with baptism. So if we, if we get our doctrine of baptism from the passages about baptism, we must conclude that it has at least something to do with salvation. Now, the people who reject that and say, no, no, it can't. You say, well, why? They don't have a Bible passage. At least they don't have a baptism Bible passage. They they bring against the idea that baptism saves. They bring the idea that you cannot be saved by your works. Mm-hmm. And so it's a syllogism, something like this. Uh, works do not save. Baptism is a work. Therefore, baptism does not save. Now, now this the problem I agree with the with the first premise is that uh, works do not save. Mm-hmm. But the idea that baptism is a work, that's nowhere in the Bible. I mean, it says in the Bible that baptism is God's work. Ephesians mm-hmm. five is my favorite passage here. It says that Christ cleansed the church with the washing of the water and the word, so that it is it is the Lord's work, not our work. Mm-hmm. He's cleansing us. So then we have to say, Alex, and this is I think where things really start to fall into place. Where does that second premise come from? Baptism is a work. Mm-hmm. And the answer is Gnosticism. Yeah. Ooh. Gnosticism assumes that if something is physical, it's it belongs to the realm of the law. It can't bring spiritual blessings. And, and that's the driving force of American Christianity, is that if something is physical or external to me, if it's outside of my heart, it can have nothing to do with salvation. Wow, that nails it. <laughs> I, you know, and, and it's and it's troubling because some of my, you know, I got I got good friends who are, you know, Baptist and Calvinist and Presbyterian, all the different groups of people, and 
as I have these discussions with them, they they generally regurgitate the same thought process that you just did, that baptism becomes a work and therefore works don't save you, so baptism can't do anything. But it's interesting that when I present to them the baptismal passages, I'm misinterpreting them wrong. That's not really what Peter meant or what Paul meant or what Jesus meant. He had to have been this. And they hop around, if you would, the uh, the, the passage, and they, they then will then try and bring other points of Scripture in and try and put the two at odds with each other. And, and then they come to some sort of logical, uh, you know, excuse or something that would fit their ideological worldview. And one of the, the, the most recent issues I've noticed is somebody trying to take Matthew 28 that you had just kind of walked through and tell you that you can't be baptized until you make a profession of faith in Christ. And again, it becomes this like wordplay of trying to fit that into a, a view of scripture that's not obviously there in scripture. Yeah, it's kind of a, you know, it makes sense in this way. So baptism is a work, so we must make it a work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so so if you start with the assumption that it's our work, then how can a baby do a work? Therefore, babies can't do bapti- can't be baptized because babies uh, can't do works. They also just, uh, I mean, it's, it, I mean, I don't know. A lot of things start to fall apart there. Uh, here, here's a helpful distinction, though. If we can be sympathetic to the idea that we mostly see adults baptized in the scriptures. Okay, mm-hmm. so if a person um, is an adult, then yeah, they should um, profess faith in Christ before they're baptized. That's great. Uh, but if someone doesn't have the capacity to profess faith in Christ, how could we exclude them from from this great gift. Mm-hmm. This is a, uh, the, the old theologians made this distinction, which I, I think a lot of people have found to be helpful, and it's the difference between saving faith and reflective faith. So, uh, and, and here's, I think, a good way to think about it. Am I a believer in Jesus when I'm asleep and I'm not thinking about it at all? The mm-hmm. answer is yeah, even though I'm not actively reflecting on my faith. Or am I a believer in Jesus if I'm running from lightning or running from a charging dog or something like this, I'm not thinking about my faith. I'm, my mind is on other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm still a believer. So my, my reflecting on my faith and my having faith are two very different things. And so if someone can reflect on their faith, we would expect that they would, and they would confess the faith and say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and then be baptized. But if someone can't reflect on their faith, that does not exclude them from having saving faith. So reflective faith and saving faith are two totally different things. And you can have one without having the capacity to have the other. Mm -hmm. And we see this when Jesus is constantly talking about the faith of the children, the little children, the nursing infants that are being carried to him. And to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, unless you have faith like a little child, Jesus says, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you've perfected praise. So, so faith and reflective faith are should be distinguished, not separated. If we if we have the capacity, 
but um, but one does not exclude uh, one does not exclude the other. We we can't set faith and baptism apart from each other. This is the big problem. Jesus says, "Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved." And the the so many of the evangelicals want that verse to say, "Whoever believes is saved and then is baptized." Mm-hmm. That's not what Jesus says. Whoever believes and is baptized, ba- baptism is part of the the way the Lord saves us, but it's not apart from faith. Belief and baptism belong together. So any theological construct that starts to oppose faith and baptism is um, is not tracking with the the biblical doctrine, the biblical words. Mm-hmm. So you you made a comment on that interview with Flame about grandparents not giving gifts to their <laughs> children i want you to i want you to kind of reiterate that again because i thought that was just that was profound I, I really liked that yeah it was i was don't ask me why this was the situation but i was teaching <laughs> the southern i was teaching my grandparents sunday mm-hmm. school class at the southern baptist church which was an odd situation and i was trying to avoid trouble i promise i was trying to avoid <laughs> trouble so i was going to do a survey of philippians and talk about law and gospel Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know, right at the beginning, maybe five, ten minutes into class, I thought things were going well. And a lady at the back raises her hand and says, out of the blue, uh, don't you Lutherans baptize the babies? <laughs> and uh, Or something like that. And I said, yes. And they were all grumbling at me. You know, I was like Moses in the wilderness mm-hmm. with Israel. They were all yeah. grumbling. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and um, I said, okay, here's the thing. We think that baptism is a gift of God, mm-hmm. and we think that children can receive gifts. So I want you to imagine this. You all have grandchildren. They all did. I mean, they're mm-hmm. this room full of grandparents. And grandparents, by the way, live to give gifts to their grandchildren, yep. and it does not matter how old the baby is. If you, you, you get a two-week-old, you give Christmas presents to. Mm-hmm. You give a ba- you, you throw a party for a baby— when the baby turns one, you you give gifts to the children. All that you even give gifts to the children before the child is born. Oh, yeah. You have a baby shower and you mm-hmm. give these gifts. So I said to this class, I said, "Okay, I, I want all you grandparents to right now, if you want to be consistent, that you will not give any gifts to your grandchildren until they are old enough to write a thank you note, Ooh. or until they're old enough to say to recognize it and say thank you." Mm-hmm. That's the, and the, the lady in the back, she says, point made. <laughs> <laughs> because just like a grandparent, God, our Father in heaven, lives to bless us with his gifts. Mm-hmm. And if baptism is a gift from God, Ephesians 5.24 and following, then then absolutely would the Lord give that those gifts to his children, even before they can even understand it. Mm-hmm. And and I think on the flip side, uh, someone says, "Well, you can't you can't be baptized till you understand baptism." Well, then nobody could be baptized because who 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 of us can understand all the gifts that the Lord gives in baptism? Who of right. us can understand all the the things that the Lord has accomplished for us on the death on the cross? And so, if mm-hmm. if understanding these things is the requirement, then none of us have reached it. We that's why we all receive the Lord's gifts as children. That's part of what the Christian faith is. Yeah, that's 
that's so spot on because it's it really it, it takes all of the argument and it just washes it away because there's you know if you hold to the fact that baptism is a you know a work that Christ does to you then there is so much more that we can um, you know embrace in that and you know one of the things that really was for me coming into the Lutheran faith and just embracing it was this acceptance of the sacraments and the understanding and the wealth of knowledge that exists there that as you said we'll never fully understand how christ does these things we don't understand all the gifts we don't understand the entirety of the death on the cross we don't understand the time between the cross and the resurrection there's just mysteries that god has given us and that's you know perfectly fine they don't require logical explanations or some philosophical reasoning to to mark we just embrace what god has freely given us and revealed to us in scripture mm. and i want to uh continue the, the the train of thought on sacraments uh and i want to now turn the attention to the lord's prayer or lord's supper uh this will be something i'm going to work on uh, in the coming weeks as i work through the book of concord and go through luther's small catechism large catechism and all that and and explain the lutheran view of the lord's supper but I want to uh, maybe give a bit of a uh, teaser, if you would, and, and, and start to look at this sacrament just a little bit. And uh, I want you, if you can, to uh, kind of walk us through the Lutheran understanding of it. And, you know, obviously there's, there's much more that we can do than 20 minutes left, but um, I want to maybe hone in on it real quick and, and work through it. Well, I remember one time I was on a uh, a podcast with a Calvinist guy and he was all worked up about the Lutheran understanding of the Lord's supper. Mm-hmm. And he said, Brian, I got to have you on another episode. Cause I can never understand the Lutheran doctrine. It's so complicated, complicated and complex. I said, no, it, we just need 30 seconds. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's goes something like this. Jesus says, this is my body. Mm-hmm. And we say, okay, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Okay, and and then we said, well, how is it his body? We're like, because he said so. Yeah, that's. I mean, what it doesn't. It's not that complicated, and yeah, uh, it's. We take it especially seriously. We understand that it's Jesus is not speaking in symbolic or metaphorical language, mm-hmm. at least not merely symbolic or metaphorical language, because he gives it to us as a testament, a covenant. This is mm-hmm. Mount Sinai stuff. Remember, in the Old Testament, we had the. The, the bulls being sacrificed and the and the goats being sacrificed and the lambs being sacrificed and eaten and so forth. Now, New Testament, we have the sacrifice of the Son of God, and we eat of that sacrifice, his body and blood. And so he, he says, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Take and drink. This, is the, this cup is the blood of the New Testament, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And we say... Thank you, Lord. God be praised. So that here I, I take the body, his body, I take his blood, I eat it, I drink it, and I know that my sins are forgiven. It's an amazing comfort and gift. It's so fantastic. And again, we, we, like we did with baptism, when we say, well, what does Jesus want his church to have and rejoice in? Jesus wants his church to have and rejoice in the eating and drinking of his body and his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Mm-hmm. And and that's why this is a big deal, that because Jesus 
is a big deal, and his words are big deals, and he, on the night when he was betrayed, gave this to the disciples and said, do this often, do it all the time. So we do what he what he instituted. I, I, I often find, and as I, I've made this connection myself personally, um, to the Lord's Supper versus how people will try to kind of um, take it and put barriers around the institution of the Lord's Supper and then be like, you know, this is a, you know, this passage obviously can't mean this. Uh, and I got, I got two things I want to go on this with, but first is John chapter six fifty three. Uh, Jesus said to him, truly, I, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the son of man and drink of his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up in the last days. I mean, that right there is a pointed statement that will soon be delivered to us in full understanding in the Lord's Supper. And I find that sometimes we get caught up in that, you know, truly eating of the body of Christ. And again, a mystery that we we just accept the fact that Jesus says this is his body. And we say, okay. And I want to just kind of jump into this, uh, you know, because you, you made the question about the symbolical framework that that this text isn't. Because I've heard some people try to argue the Lord's Supper where Jesus is holding out the bread and wine versus the I am statements found in the Gospel of John. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, so, um, it, it, Jesus, it, I mean, first of all, it, there's a big difference between I am the bread of life and this bread is my body. It's It's working completely in the other direction. But also, it's true that Jesus is the bread of life. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. there's nothing not true about that. Right. Both statements are, are are equally true, wonderfully true. When Jesus was talking about the bread of life, he was not um, instituting something. I mean, mm-hmm. he was teaching who he who he is. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting thing. And Alex, this will be. I mean, it's this was always two years at seminary every. Uh, second and third year at seminary was dedicated to debating about John six, mm. because very interestingly, the Reformed tradition loves John six mm-hmm. because a little later on Jesus says the flesh profits nothing, and that's right. their whole doctrine. The flesh mm. profits nothing. I mean, that's the kind of the abstraction of the Reformed theology. So, um, so Luther famously said that John six is not talking about the Lord's Supper, mm. and it comes. Uh, wonderfully, it's. I think it's made really quite clear in the formula of Concord, where they understand that John six is especially talking about the incarnation of Jesus, mm-hmm. and the eating and drinking of his flesh and blood. There is the confession of his incarnation, which also happens in the supper, mm-hmm. but it's not exclusively a sacramental thing, because you could get twisted around. Because there's a lot of people who've never had the Lord's supper, mm-hmm. and yet they believe in Jesus and are saved and the necessity of the supper would be taught there in John six, if it was specifically about that. So that'll be, that'll be fun for you to wrestle with. I mean, it's really a quite a a wonderful, um, uh, uh, theological question to wrestle with. The nice thing the Lutherans would always simply go back to the words of institution. Mm -hmm. Uh, What does Jesus say? This is, and the words are simple. This is my body, 
this is my blood poured out. And so we rejoice there in the body and the blood. And and I've been thinking more and more, especially about Revelation 12, where it talks about how the devil is removed from the heavenly courtroom, tossed down to earth, and he comes after us here on earth, the Christians. And uh, and it says in the Revelation that that the devil is overcome by the by the word of their testimony, by the blood of the Lamb, and by their not loving their lives unto death. Mm-hmm. So th- this, in fact, that in some ways encapsulates our whole conversation so far. We have the word. We can't let it go. We talked about the ELCA and how they've just sort of abandoned the word. We can't mm-hmm. let the word go. That's how we fight the devil. Yeah. And we see and and we have the sacraments. We have the blood. The word and the blood, and that's what I want to call our Sunday morning services. By the way, mm. uh, at St. Paul, We're, we have at eight o'clock and eleven o'clock, we have the word and the blood, mm. and then we don't love our lives unto death. That's the freedom of the Christian mm-hmm. to live and to die, knowing that we belong to the Lord Jesus. And we're not we're not here trying to protect our own lives. It belongs to the Lord. If if they take our lives, well, what of it? God be praised. We're to live as Christ, to die as gain. We're not afraid of anything. We're rejoicing the whole time uh, in the Lord's in the Lord's kindness, and so and, and in this way, we overcome the devil. Ah, it's great. Mm. Yeah, that really sums this whole conversation up perfectly. Because you know, I think one of the things for me that was really embracing is the beauty of how Scripture is read and. You know, when I was a in the Calvinist circle, it was um, God's redemptive plan, and it's you know our call to to be obedient to Him, and you know, so it's always a it, it is more of that covenantal positioning where God does something, and then we have to do something in order to obtain our salvation. When if we read Scripture in the eyes of law gospel, we see that there is obedience there, but that is truncated by the gospel, which frees us from having to climb that ladder of theology to get to whatever platform we think we need to be at to obtain salvation. And yeah, yeah that's right. I, I've, I've noticed, and I want to kind of maybe ask you this question. I don't know if you've seen it too much, but I noticed, you know, some of the, in the Lutheran circles, um, the, you know, the more, confessional groups they don't necessarily care for jihad ferdy and oh. i yeah. i've i've been kind of shocked because i've read some of his books and i was quite i mean he was one of the like gateways if you would for me to really fully embrace lutheran theology so you know his view on the latter theology and and all that was really profound and so i'm curious what do, how do you see those dynamics playing out yeah it's a good, that's a that's a probably good in-house debate but so Ferdy has some good and some bad, I suppose, like everybody, mm-hmm. but his bad is pretty bad. Mm. So his doctrine of scripture is weak, but his doctrine of the atonement is very weak. Mm. Um, he either he either denied or at least did not like to talk about the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, which is the mm. idea that Jesus was bearing our sins under the wrath of God, taking our place under God's mm-hmm. wrath. And he, just because of his theological inclinations, did not like, did not like that at all. So he was good on the, 
he was good on how law and gospel was a punch in the face. Mm-hmm. And, and so he has this sort of existentialist take on Lutheran theology, which is, um, which can be helpful to a lot of people, mm-hmm. especially because if you believe that the Lord's word is, is information, it's kind of flat, and it benefits only when you react to it mm-hmm. by believing it or most especially by following it, then there's something very refreshing in Ferdy's understanding that the word acts on us. Mm-hmm. And that's a Lutheran idea, and he, he articulated that well. Mm-hmm. And so God be praised for that. But he, um, it, uh, it, so, so much of his stuff is about the existential impact that it, it misses the historical reality, and that's where that's where he's been a divisive point. Mm. Yeah, I was just uh, that probably is the best answer I've gotten uh, in mm. terms of like what his uh, you know his positioning on some things were. And you know, I've read uh, a few of his books early in my seminary journey, and then now most of everything I'm doing is is focused on scripture and, and reading Luther's take on everything. So good, yeah, yeah. just. It's better to go to the source. I, you know, I, I mean, I read uh, Ferdy's on becoming a theologian of the cross, mm-hmm. and I and he was working with Luther's Heidelberg theses, and and then I, I read Luther's Heidelberg theses, and I said, I don't think Ferdy and I are reading the same theses. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. not sure what he's not not that what he was doing with it was was what he was saying was wrong, but I'm not sure it was what Luther was saying at all. Mm-hmm. And and that's one of the marks too. The, this if you get a theology of the cross versus um, versus the uh, theology of glory. This is one of the early Lutheran distinctions that Luther really lays aside later, well, really quickly, to, mm-hmm. to, in, in place of law and gospel. But it, I, I don't know. There's a thing in, in Lutheran theology where, I don't know, guys get bored <laughs> with things like law and gospel, so they want mm-hmm. something fancier. Mm-hmm. And that is... Very dangerous. It's what well, it's what Luther warns about in his introduction to the catechisms, the uh, uh, acadia or mm-hmm. theological uh, boredom is is always a perennial danger. So we always got to rejoice in the basics. We can't yeah. we can't ever go beyond that. Mm-hmm. Perfect. That is that really just kind of I think sums this whole thing up. You know, cool. it's just being comfortable in the basics of theology and not trying to make it a circus act that a lot of churches try to put on. You know, I, I am, I am so again, this is one of the, I mean, I'm on a, on a rampage against mm-hmm. the, the expert class. I mean, it does so much damage in our society, but in the church then too, is to, is to make theology an expert game. Mm-hmm. No, theology belongs to the Lord's people, to all the Lord's people. And there's no, there's no expert theologian. Every Christian is a theologian, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's so important. That's how the Lord um, intended it to be. So don't ever let anybody. I mean, just for you, but for everyone listening too, to say, oh, you know, that's that's a question for the theologians. No, mm-hmm. no, 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 no. That's yeah. that's not. There's you are a theologian. Yep, exactly. And that's one thing I try to uh, talk with some of my friends. It's like they ask me a question. And I know I know the answer. I could give them the answer, but I try to drive home a concept of them finding the answer because it, it teaches you that there's 
there is other means than just simply asking and receiving a question. And, yep. you know, and I think Google has made that a, a problem with societies. <laughs> we have all of our answers now in our, in our hand. We don't have to actually go and research anything. We don't have mm-hmm. to read a book. We don't have to mm-hmm. study anything. Mm-hmm. So I'm always much an advocate of pushing people back into the text and say, well, what does this passage say? What does that passage say? Tell me what, you know, some of the commentators on that passage would then say. And uh, I get a better response, even though they don't like it, because that means they have to go do work. Uh, but I get a better response out of them when uh, they actually come back and say, oh, I get it now. That makes much more sense to me. Mm-hmm. So I want to re- uh, be a respecter of your time. Uh, we're getting close to the end of the hour here. And uh, I want to just let you, if you would, plug yourself, uh, where people can find you, what resources you have available for people. Um, I'm big on promoting uh, all of my guests. So, and I know you've written a few books and so I want you to kind of, uh, take the spotlight if you would, for just a moment. Uh, so wolfmiller.co is where all the stuff ends up. But I mean, this is, I, we always back to the simplicity of Jesus in the scriptures. That's where we need to spend our time rejoicing mm-hmm. in, uh, in his great gifts. So, um, my stuff only if it's helpful, but, but Jesus is always, uh, with us to keep us and bless us. So, uh, so that's the main thing. Wonderful. That is perfect. Yeah, it's. I always, I always try to find myself like, you know, when I'm done with school, I want to write a book. I've got some ideas in my head, and I'm like, but I, I just keep coming back. I'm like, well, is it, is what I'm gonna do or what I plan to do? You know, I, I want to obviously pray through everything and and walk the right path for it. But I'm like, you know, scripture is just so beautiful. And, and, and I can write on scripture and I can, you know, we can go into that drink of that well of knowledge, you know, and, until the end of our days. And, you know, I, I just, I'm always, I, you got to walk that fine line. Like you said, it's like all of the beauty and the simplicity is found in scripture. And that's where our big focus should be. And then everything else kind of uh, is added to that as supplemental. That's and right. so, that's right. well, Brian, uh, thank you so much for this conversation uh, you got it Alex. really really enjoyed it and i hope the audience has well and uh, i know it'll be another uh, instrumental piece in this uh walk through the lutheran theology that we're doing and i hope uh they can you know meet up with you and, and follow you on social media and you know get your take and uh, as you work through the various pieces on your youtube channel and um so i, I I encourage everybody, I'll, I'll put the information in the show notes for them, and uh, I encourage everybody to go and follow you, and just to, you know, start to really fully understand the Lutheran aspect, so. Awesome. Thank you, Alex. Yep, thanks so much, Brian. We'll see everybody later. God bless. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at fifty to eighty percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 